they're doing the research and their work on anybody who's working on the U.S. side of the border. And if you screw up once, they've got you. You know, if you if you say, yeah, sure, I'll run a, I'll see if you got a warrant. I'll run a check for you. I'll do that. They've got you. And then and then they've got you for life. And then on the other side of that, when we catch one of the big guys in the cartel, which which happened, then those guys have a get out of jail free card. Right. They've got an asset that they can use to reduce their sentence because, oh, you know, like you're going to arrest me and lock me up for life. Let me tell you about the 15 different cops that I've made payments to the, the Border Patrol agents I've paid off. Right. So you're screwed. I mean, the second you you step in that direction, the cartel owns you and they own you until they decide to give you up. Hey guys, if you missed out on the last conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't want to miss out on the next one. It's April 28th through May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. You made a mistake missing the last one. You don't want that to happen again on this one. Five days of some of the best training you're ever going to experience packed into one event. We have an early bird special right now, $50 off. Use 24 early bird on our website, streetcop.com. Look for the conference, click the link, register today. If you want to get significantly better at this profession in five days, don't dare miss out on the 2024 Street Cop Conference. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Pino, and today we have with us uh, a guest speaker, a person who does speaking events and engagements, has a great history, is a great human being. It'll start to surface very quickly when we start talking about the things and places I want to go with this podcast. But I appreciate you so much for being here today. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Healy is here with us today. Chris, thank you. And tell us a little bit about you who you are, and don't leave out any details. I just didn't want to read your fucking profile from your website right. of like, Chris then rescued sea turtles and then brought those sea turtles back to life using CPR. Like everybody's got this fucking thing written about them that's just so amazing. Yeah. I want mine to be like, Dennis is not a dick. Right. And he could talk good in front of, and gives context. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I, I didn't rescue any sea turtles. Um, but yeah, I was you're, a, you're a uh, you know that <laughs> I didn't, I didn't kick any of them either though. So, okay. 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 I'll take that back. Uh, so I'm indifferent to sea turtles and their plight, but yeah, no, I was uh, I was a special agent with, with department of Homeland security office of inspector general. Um, I left in 2022, uh, went into entrepreneurship with my wife. Uh, we own a couple of businesses, but I spent over 15 years with the federal government, both with ice and DHS OIG. Um, and then I spent a fair amount of time kind of in the importer exporter business with ice. I was, uh, I was mostly an exporter. I was taking people back to reunite them with their family abroad. So I got to take, you know, thousands of MS-13s back to Central America. I got to take people all over the world, got to see about 15 countries. So I got to kind of go around on behalf of the U.S. government. Got hired on with DHS OIG to do internal affairs. Uh, spent most of my career down the Rio Grande Valley. So about 10 years on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, as you can imagine, there's a fair amount of corruption down there with all the cartel money that's flowing across. So I got to work on the public corruption task force, got to work on the DEA, um, hide a task force, got to do a lot of stuff, got to put bracelets on a lot of guys that uh, were supposed to be on the good side of the line, uh, including my own, my own special agent in charge. I got, um, I caught him doing something illegal. He ended up going to jail for three years after I wow. uh, blew the whistle on that. Um, and then uh, after I got off the border, I went into largely into telefraud. And I started looking into basically one day I was the duty agent down the Rio Grande Valley and uh, my Spanish is not great. So I 
I didn't have the most utility as a, as a special agent down there. I couldn't go undercover or anything. So whenever there was a fraud case or something that came in on the hotline that was outside of the norm, that got dropped on my desk. And I kind of became the, the go-to guy for fraud. My boss came and dropped a, a case on my desk one day. He said, listen, we're getting a lot of phone calls from people up in the Houston area. Uh, H-1B visa holders, they're getting these telephone calls. They're saying it's DHS calling. They're threatening them with deportation if they don't pay these fines. Can you look into this? And what we were thinking it was, was maybe it was like USCIS, like an employee of the government had like a list of applicants, a list of you know beneficiary applicants, and was kind of like just scamming these people kind of on the side. And what it really turned out to be after I started to scratch the surface, it turned into a six-year-long investigation uh, that dug into basically the call center industry in India. And we ended up at the end of it, my team indicted 56 people in five call centers. Uh, we had over 17,000 victims that we talked to over the course of this thing. It was a $300 million fraud scam. And if you ever got a telephone call from someone calling and saying, this is the IRS, you owe us money. Uh, this is the FBI, you owe us money. Those were the guys that I went after. And I spent basically the last like, I don't know, seven years or so of my career chasing down those guys. And uh, yeah, it was a passion project. It, average age of my victims was 73. So I was dealing with- wow. A lot of elder fraud, a lot of people who were victims of that IRS scam. And uh, so, yeah, kind of kind of turned that into my my passion. And uh, unfortunately, the case, when it landed, we really hoped it would get a lot of attention from the media. But we indicted the case literally about two weeks before the 2016 election. So as you could imagine, uh, you know, it, it, it didn't get the attention that it, it probably deserved to get. Um, but it was a pretty big deal. We had, uh, you know, DOJ press conference and everything. And I remember sitting there in the command center after we had done our, we had done a sweep across eight different states. We had arrested like 25 people domestically across eight different states. We were sitting there in the kind of the command center watching the, I think it was the criminal chief and then like the head of HSI and the head of my agency and the head of like a couple other agencies standing up there talking about my case. And it was like the coolest thing I've ever done. I mean, it was all downhill from there, literally. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's that's the career in a nutshell. It's like winning the gold medal, right? They do the interviews with these Olympic people, like train what, like 20 years for this yeah. one moment and then it's over. And there's like all this depression surrounding like Olympic gold medal athletes because it seems like their life no longer matters after that. I, I, can, I can understand that a little bit because you hit that kind of, you know, people were telling me this is a career case. This is a career case. And I wasn't thinking of that because I was in it. You know, every single day I was just getting up and I was grinding out eight, nine, 10 hours. I was calling victims. I was writing the next search warrant. I was coordinating with my partners. There were like four of us. We 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 referred to ourselves. It was like four feds and then a couple of local guys that that were part of our little kind of ad hoc task force. We called ourselves the six guys who gave a shit because that was, that was what we were. We were just the only people in America who gave a shit about telefraud at the time. And, uh, and so we were just in the fight. People kept telling me, they're like, man, this is a career case. This is, you're never gonna see anything like this ever again. You're never gonna do anything like this again. And it wasn't until it was over that I kind of started to feel that. And, and it's, it's over and you're handing the ball over to the prosecutors, right? And then for the next couple of years, you go from being in the driver's seat to kind of being you know, their assistant and you, you kind of take that back seat because they've got to get the, the pleas and everybody pled out, which thank God for it. But you've got to do the, the proffers and the pleas and you're trying to work it on to the next guy and the spinoffs and everything else. But you give up that control and you sit in the back seat for a minute and it, it does. It, it can kind of weigh on you a little bit. You're like, what's next? What's next? What's next? How am I ever going to recreate this? Because the feeling you get from making a big case like that is just, it's, it's got to be like my gold medal. I mean, that's, that's got to be what it is for me. 
I guess I have a question that I don't know if you want to answer it, uh, but going back a little bit, being internal affairs in uh, the Rio Grande Valley in uh-huh. Mexico, and there being a lot of corruption, like what kind of stuff were you seeing with that kind of cartel money yeah. out there? Like what, what were you guys investigating? Like how fucking, because like for us in New Jersey, like our internal affairs is like, oh, he was doing 12 over the speed limit when he shouldn't have, you know, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, it wasn't that. So like um, the way it works, uh, and I know you've got a little bit of a federal background, so I'm not sure how it worked with the agencies that you were with, but with Department of Homeland Security, you've got like 26 different agencies that fall under that department. There's probably more now. They're always adding another, you know, three letter, four letter agency, whatever. So like Secret Service, Border Patrol, CBP, uh, TSA, I mean, you name it, they're all kind of under this big DHS umbrella. And within the internal affairs community, each agency has their own kind of OPR, that Office of Professional Responsibility. And they're kind of, not, not to like put them down, it's, it's, a, it's a job that needs to be done, but they handle that sort of stuff. Like the guy who, you know, had a DUI off duty or the guy who, you know, like lost his flashlight or like, you know, lost some gear or whatever. That's different than what, what we were doing as no IG. We purely handled criminal allegations, felony level criminal allegations. And we got the first bite of the apple for anything that was fraud, waste, abuse, corruption related within DHS. So at the border, we're dealing with, you know, a billion dollar industry right across the border from us. These guys have more money than the NFL, you know, and they, they can pay a lot better than we can. I mean, our GS-12s down there, you know, maybe scraping by at $96,000 a year, maybe $100,000 a year if they work 45 Act, they work their overtime, their shift differentials, all that stuff. Those guys can't make the kind of money the cartel can pay, right? And so a lot of those guys, the issues that I saw, and I, I grew up in New England. I moved down 2,600 miles from Maine to work on the the southern border. So I wasn't from there, but a lot of the guys who work down there are from there. And so if you're in the border patrol, you're in CBP, you get hired. It used to be, if you were from Brownsville, if you're from McAllen, they hired you and sent you to San Diego, or you know they sent you to El Paso. They sent you somewhere where you didn't know anybody. They stopped doing that because it was a recruitment problem. So they start hiring people in Brownsville to work in Brownsville. McAllen to work in McAllen, Laredo to work in Laredo. And what ends up happening is everybody's got a cousin, everybody's got a buddy, they meet at a picnic, they meet at a soccer game, they meet at a, a softball game, whatever. And the, the cartel has people and they find out what you do and that, that slippery slope starts, you know, can you do me a favor? Can you run a check? Can you see if I got a warrant? Can you see this, that, or the other thing? And the next thing you know, that guy's like facilitating 10 kilos coming across. He's facilitating 40 bodies coming across. And we saw that stuff. We got those allegations. Um, probably the biggest case that I worked on we, the task force, uh, the border corruption task force that I worked with, with FBI, we took down like 15 cops. It was like training day. And it went all the way up to the sheriff of Hidalgo County, which is one of the biggest counties on the, the southwest border. You can look this up. Is that that them. video where they showed up with a warrant for his arrest? It's like a viral video. Is that that same thing? No. No, this guy, we, we um, so he had, the guy's name was uh, uh, Lupe Trevino. That's the sheriff's name. His son was Jonathan Trevino. So it's a total nepotism thing. He gets his kid a gig at the like uh, one of the police departments in the county. He's the sheriff and his guy's kid gets a job and he gives him his own little task force. He's like 22 years old. He gets his own little drug task force, hybrid task force between like cops and like deputies. And these guys are running like training. They're basically they're just ripping off like dopers and then reselling the dope. And then they're also running protection for other dopers. So if you want to move dope through Hidalgo County, these guys are going to make sure you get through Hidalgo County. So we ended up taking down 
several dopers who were buying from them. We took down, it went all the way up to the sheriff himself. He did three years of jail. So that sort of stuff was happening. I mean, like the Rio Grande Valley, it's like you're competing as DHS with, you know, with the cartels for recruitment. If you think of it that way, dude. The, the other thing is after you remember, like, you know, if you went through Fletzy in like the post 9-11 days, you remember how it was like nobody was getting hired, right? Like they had that kind of hiring freeze while they stood up DHS and then they just pumped like 20,000 people through there. I mean, it was just bonkers. When I went through the first time, like lines like out the dining hall halfway down to the library just to try to get like, you know, a, a burger at lunchtime. Like it was crazy the amount of people going through there. They had this mass hiring post 9-11 to try to beef up border border security to try to stop the next 9-11. What ended up happening, though, was a lot of people got through, because this was pre-poly, there were no polygraphs. So a lot of people, they filled out that SF-86 or whatever, and they just got through. And the cartel sent a lot of people through the academy in those days. You know, there were a lot of wow. people who came through in the early 2000s that ended up being my problems four or five years down the line that we found out, like, how the hell did this guy get hired in the first place? Well, he didn't have any criminal history, but if you dug a little bit deeper, scratched a little bit deeper, his uncle was, you know, a corrupt, you know, Tamaulipas, you know, state police officer in Mexico, you know, doing security for the cartel. Of course, he ended up being corrupt. So that sort of stuff happened all the time down there. And uh, and it was I was a talk about fish out of water. I mean, I literally came from Maine, um, you know, like down to deep South Texas, culturally, you know, just geo like geographically, just the atmosphere, everything completely different and uh, just plugged me in and I just got to got to see it firsthand. It's wild, dude. Like there's a lot of things <laughs> yeah. that people don't like for us here, like never heard of such a thing, right? Like, like, you know, just. We, we had it happen all the time down there. I mean, it, it, the, what was funny is I would talk to my buddies back home, like who were, you know, cops in Maine or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, I mean, you know, like the, the amount of dope that would be abandoned there just guys like bringing a you know a bale of weed on their back across the border and you know border patrol would come after them and they just drop it and, and leave so the amount of just abandoned dope that's down there i like you're talking like a career case from just the the throwaway stuff that these guys are dropping on the side of the road when they're they're evading um but yeah we saw it all the time we, we arrested guys who were like school board members guys who were city councilors all of them for ties to narcotics trafficking Guys were using their official positions to launder money for the cartels. I mean, the Gulf Cartel is right there across the border. It's, I mean, it's literally where Brownsville is, where the DEA office was that I was at. I mean, it was within a couple of miles from, you know, from the border itself, from the closest border crossing. And so if you're sitting there, you've got CBP officers at these different ports of entry, and you're on the Mexican side of the river. They've got spies out there. They've got scouts out there. They're watching what these guys are doing, what their patterns are, how they work. They're looking for ways to exploit them. They're doing surveillance on these guys. They're following them home. They're saying, do they live at home? What's their home life like? They're doing the research and their work on anybody who's working on the U.S. side of the border. And if you screw up once, they've got you. You know, if you if you say, yeah, sure, I'll run a, I'll see if you got a warrant. I'll run a check for you. I'll do that. They've got you. And then and then they've got you for life. And then on the other side of that, when we catch one of the big guys in the cartel, which which happened um, periodically. You know, the Gulf Cartel and the Zetas were banging it out. The, they had kind of a little civil war going on. Then those guys have a get out of jail free card, right? They've got an asset that they can use to reduce their sentence because, oh, you know, like you're going to arrest me and lock me up for life. Let me tell you about the 15 different cops that I've made payments to, the, the Border Patrol agents I've paid off, right? So you're screwed. I mean, the second you you step in that direction, the cartel owns you. 
and they own you until they decide to give you up. Wild. Yeah. Yeah, it's nuts. But the GS12, the GS13 down there, that's a great salary. But the problem is, if you don't uproot and move out of the neighborhood that you grew up in, you're just asking for trouble. Did you say earlier, did I mishear you, that you had to handle one of your own, your special agent in charge? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like brand new. Uh, I had been with ICE for like three years and I went over to, uh, to DHSOIG, went back to the academy, went through, you know, criminal investigator training program. I was sitting there and this is the, this is like the stupidest crime that ever occurred. Um, my boss at the time was brand new. He had just been promoted to special agent charge within like the last year or so. And I think all agencies probably do this, but we're having like an annual inspection where they come down and they make sure your property room's all squared away, your evidence is right, you know, you've got all your undercover money and everything squared away. They just, you know, it's one of those internal agency things where they send the group down to look at you. And he started freaking out about this because we had so much corruption and we had so many, so many cases that we were opening up that progress wasn't being made on a lot of cases. We only had like a dozen guys in the office and he's assigning out like everything that comes in on the hotline. Every like first name unknown, last name unknown, corrupt border patrol, no meat on the bone. He's just afraid to like let it go to the smaller agencies and get embarrassed. So he's opening up every case and sending them to us. So I'm sitting there with a stack of like 20 cases and a, a special agent can probably maybe manage five, six at a time, maybe depending on how complex they are. And so things just aren't getting done. And he's freaking out about this inspection. So he gathers up a couple of guys in the office that are close to promoting guys who are incentivized to want to please him and he gets them to write up a bunch of fake reports to stuff these cases with and we call those moas memorandums of activity so we're writing up basically investigative reports and he's fluffing these cases with fake reports so that when the inspectors come down it looks like our office is doing more than it's doing and i saw it I, like I, I walked into a conference room as it was happening and i was like, <laughs> like you know basically just like you know, accidentally, you know, grab a cup of coffee from the, you know, the break room is and then walk around the corner, check in what's happening in the conference room. And it's like literally a criminal conspiracy. Like they're literally creating false documents to stuff into case files. And so when the inspectors came down and they're asking about what's going on, um, you know, I kind of had that like, what do I do here feeling? Because for me, and, and you know, you know how it is, like you're, you're going to go go toe to toe against the guy who holds your career in your hands you better be right. You better, you, you know, you better, you better make a headshot. And, uh, yeah, so I blew the whistle on, on what I saw. And, uh, three years later, he ended up, uh, going to jail for it, went to jail for like oh. 36 months, but wow. it was a, it was a hellacious. Why did he years. do that? Why did he do that? I still, you know, it's a great question that I ask all the time. I don't know. I think he, I think he, it was one of those imposter syndrome things where the guy got the job, it, we had been what was called a rack office. So it's like the head of the office was like a GS-14. So it was like a, a small office. They upgraded the office. So he became a GS-15. He's a pretty, pretty big deal. There's not many GS-15s in the Rio Grande Valley. Guy was making bank. And I think he had a sense of, I don't deserve this to an extent. And he was worried that the, I'm psychoanalyzing him, but he was worried that the, uh, the inspectors were going to reveal that he, he shouldn't have been in that position. So he was just covering his own ass. Like I've never seen anybody of to avoid an administrative risk slapping create a criminal conspiracy. It's the most most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And he mm. did it. 
And so, you know, we had the FBI crawling all up our ass. We, they were in our office, you know, pulling all our computers because they, they didn't know who was involved and who wasn't. And so for the next three years, it was just like that thing just hanging over our shoulder about, I think there were nine guys in my office, something like that. And six of them got put on, um, got put on administrative leave. There were only like three of us left to handle the entire Rio Grande Valley. Um, I mean, they had to send in a supervisor from Houston to manage the office. So the whole thing was just a fiasco. And I was like a brand new rookie agent. <laughs> so um, it kind of put a little bit of a little bit of a black mark on my 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 uh, my career trajectory. You know, I didn't I, I didn't uh, I didn't exactly rise to the top of anybody's promotion list after that. <laughs> so, you know, what was this? Well, now, how many guys overall got in trouble? Just him? Two guys went to jail. Um, God, two, uh, two other guys got fired. Yeah. So uh, him and one of my colleagues, actually my FTO, went to jail. And, uh, and my, my SAC went to jail. And then uh, the ASAC got, he didn't get fired, but he, he, was, he was basically told you're retiring. And he didn't have his high three. He didn't have any of that stuff yet, but it was kind of like, you're done. Um, so his writing was on the wall. And then another guy got terminated. So it was four, four total. How did that impact the feeling towards you? You had alluded to it a little bit in the organization at this point. Yeah, it wasn't good. <laughs> we had we had an inspector general as the head of an OIG office. And so that's a presidential appointee. And the presidential appointee at that time, here's another guy you should look up. His name was Charles Edwards. He has since gone to jail uh, himself. So he was he was the head of the agency. He basically put out feelers. He said, listen, like, we're going to shut that office down. Um, you know, and understandably so, like, the, you know, the, the sack of that office had done something really terrible. It disrupted our reputation. It made it very hard for anybody to trust that the internal affairs people were on the up and up. Well, marching orders came down through kind of his chain of command. The next guy who was in charge of investigations flew down to our office. He got all of us in a conference room and he closed the door. He said, I don't know if I should his exact words. He said, I didn't know if I should come down here and apologize to you or show you all the door. And so we're sitting there like myself and a couple other guys who spoke up about what was going on. We're sitting there thinking like, man, you should be coming down here and like, you know, pinning an award on us for like blowing the whistle on corruption or we're, we're internal affairs. We're supposed to be held to a higher standard. And you're coming down here and threatening my, my career. Like you're going to show us all the door. I didn't do anything wrong. I, I saw these guys doing it and reported it. And so that kind of set the tone for the next three years with the agency. I just sat there every single day waiting for that shoe to drop, waiting for somebody to find out, you know, it's one of those where you've got a G ride and you're like, all right, you know, is, am I being surveilled the whole time? Am I, if I stop and, you know, get a gallon of milk on the way home, is that going to be the way that they fire me? Like they're looking for any reason, right? You know, of course. You really believe they were looking for any reason at that time? You feel like. Oh God, yeah. Was... Oh God, yeah. Yeah. And I never got disciplined. Nothing ever happened to me, but yeah, I was, I was very nervous and to make matters worse the fbi of course um you know starts looking into it public corruption because my agency initially when we reported it when i reported it my agency's initial reaction was to try to cover it up and then somebody up at headquarters was upset that management was trying to cover it up and they sent it over to the public integrity section you know do you know who was in charge of public integrity section at the time Oof, I, I don't know a guy named jack smith does that name sound familiar Prosecu prosecuting, uh, prosecuting former President Trump right now. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So that was the investigator. That was the guy who was in charge of the unit that was investigating my office. Was Jack Smith? 
I, I met him uh, when I went up to testify before the grand jury up in up in D.C. Um, I met the guy. So I guess that's my claim to fame. But um, yeah, he was his people were digging through everything in our office because they didn't know, you know, is is Healy part of this? He's the whistleblower. But did he do this as well? Did he stuff some files? And one of the guys in my office who had nothing to do with this ended up getting indicted. They ended up dismissing the charges after they realized that they were wrong. But his life got turned upside down for a year. He got indicted as part of the conspiracy. Um, Eventually, it got, you know, it got uh, it got cut loose, dismissed with prejudice. But yeah, so the rest of us were kind of looking over our shoulder, like when when am I going to get indicted? Like when am I going to get? I a horrible way to live, dude. Had you regret? Did you regret at that time taking that decision? You think it's just would have just been easier if I didn't didn't say anything? I'm I'm not saying now. I'm saying then. I'm sure there had to be some regret because I think everybody when they go through something that they right right or wrong were the cause of that action you're always playing hindsight 2020 like you know i've been there bro i'm like you know i've I've had days where i'm like how the fuck am i doing this like why am i doing this to myself you know like why the fuck and then i'm like remind like i have those moments i'm human being right then i'm just like oh yeah that's right like everybody needs me to show up but there are times i'm like why couldn't i just fucking go be a fucking mailman like everybody else i gotta deal with this bullshit yeah and i had that that you know that feeling regularly because we went again we're an extremely busy office on the u.s mexico border mm-hmm. we've got big corruption cases that we're supposed to be working on and there were literally at this point like three of us left so we our, our force got cut by two-thirds while this investigation was going on guys got put on leave while they were figuring out if they were somebody that needed to be charged or somebody that needed to be relocated or somebody that needed to be you know put on some sort of administrative leave so these guys are just like gone they're just out of the picture and so the workload on top of the stress of dealing with everything that's happening the workload is higher and every day it was like what what am i doing here you know and i was constantly on usa jobs looking for maybe i should go maybe i should move maybe i should get out of here um yeah it was it was a heavy burden why didn't you leave i I was so new i mean i i was like a gs9 so i didn't like have exactly a, a lateral path at that point i couldn't just say hey i'm a 13 like and go work for some other agency i would have had to go back to I might have had to go back to an academy again. I had, you know, I owned a house. I had a wife. Like, I, it wasn't just me at that point, too. Like, I had now ties to the community. I was, I was there. Um, you know, so for me, it turned into how do I, how do I deal with this? You know, it's that was a, you know, we 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 throw the word trauma around a lot in law enforcement. This wasn't like the trauma of seeing somebody shot in front of me or your partner, like you know, committing suicide or something like that. But it was. The trauma of showing up every day and waiting for that other shoe to drop, waiting for what's going to happen next. Is my agency going to terminate me? Am I going to get indicted like my buddy just did? Like, what, what's going to happen next? And so all that was just that turmoil. And I just turned that into, that's when I started running. That's when I started doing marathons. That's why I did my first Ironman. That's when I started doing ultra marathons. I just poured all of that nervous anxiety, that nervous energy into physical fitness. And I just went out and did that every day. And that's how I cleared my head. It was like... Go for a long run, go for a long bike ride, go for a swim on your lunch break, whatever you got to do to like, just keep moving forward. So did you literally end your career there on that? Like still had the black cloud over your head, watch this guy. Yeah. And you did that's essentially, is that why you decided to like, it was about about enough? I I worked my ass off for, for another, I mean, 13 years after that, 12 years thereabouts after that for the same agency. I didn't leave my agency. I transferred within the agency to a different office, um, but I stayed I stayed with the agency. And I'm certain of it. I'm certain that 
me kind of breaking that blue wall, blowing the whistle on on my own chain of command, because it, it, it was like a brush fire through my agency. Once the FBI got involved, the head of investigations got, he was gone. You know, the, the head of the IG himself, he was gone. He ended up going to jail on something else later on. The two or three like deputy IGs gone. So it was just like the whole like DC just got wiped out because they were the ones who tried to suppress the, you know, the, the whistleblowers. And so when the FBI got involved, it was just one after another of those guys gone. And that for the next 10 years, I mean, that followed me. Like I, I lit the match that caused this brush fire that upset a lot of people's careers. And, uh, you know, I don't regret it. Uh, but it definitely, it definitely impacted my career down the line. Nobody ever told me, Hey, you're not going to get this promotion because you know, you, uh, because you blew the whistle on your chain of command. But it, you know, I watched time after time, other people get promoted ahead of me. And I was out there like making literally the biggest telefraud case in us history and couldn't get promoted. So yeah, <laughs> I think it followed me. So the ultimate decision to leave was you just had enough of it. It was family. Um, so my, in 2022, 2021, um, so I started kind of going back a little bit during that whole putting my boss in jail thing. I started getting really into physical fitness and my wife joined me. We started running, we started doing long distance triathlon, ultra, ultra distance races. Wow. And people started coming to us and saying, Hey, I want to run a marathon. Um, the Rio Grande Valley is not a healthy place. It's a, it's a place that has a lot of, a lot of folks. Um, it's, cut to the chase it's one of the most obese places in america like unhealthy lifestyle unhealthy diet and so we were out there doing something very unique we were running and we were working out and we were, we were physically fit and people kept coming up and saying i want to i want to run a marathon i didn't feel like i was qualified to coach but my wife and i started kind of coaching people and that eventually over the next 10 years grew into a personal training business a wellness business a physical fitness related business that my wife by being a you know, a brilliant entrepreneur turned into a very successful company. And we had kind of toyed with the idea of me leaving. Um, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't unhappy. I was doing work that I felt was useful, that I, I felt was serving people. I enjoyed it. I was good at it. And I knew my, my standing with the agency. I wasn't like applying for promotion at that point. I knew I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere and I was fine. I was in Houston. I had a high cola, no problem. But she basically came to me and said, like, I could, I could use you. You're, you're, you know, you're a fraud guy. You're good at you're good at spreadsheets. You're good at following the money. You're good at keeping track of things. I could use you in this business, and it was kind of a perfect storm. Around that same time, my father-in-law was diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer, and we knew that we were going to be losing him inside of the next year. And so it was an opportunity for me to step out of service with the government, step into service with my wife's business, and give her the freedom to be more involved in her father's end of life care. And mm -hmm. so I kind of stepped into a role in the business and a role as more of a full-time dad more involved in my children's life and she got to be there more hands-on and you know at the end of life stuff with her dad so it kind of it kind of came a little bit sooner than i would have expected i mean we were kind of looking at the exit plan as maybe 18 months out we pushed the schedule up and said you know we're going to leave in three months um but i don't regret it it was a good decision i'm glad to be on the other side of it and uh it was a great experience i loved being a special agent i love doing the job i love catching bad guys I loved being smarter than the guys who are running these massive, you know, telefraud schemes. Uh, but I also love being there every single day to get my kids out the door for school instead of, you know, kicking in a door in South Houston at five in the morning. I love being there. You know, I love being able to go pick them up after school. I love being there to tuck them in at night. So, um, you know, it's, it's good on this side too. 
Hey guys, follow us on all social media platforms to include Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. We have so much information going out every single day and we don't want you to miss out on any of that stuff. So check it out. Go give us a follow. I wanted to say this before, but I didn't want to interrupt. Dude, how fucking awesome is Fletzy? Dude, Dude I, had, I went through it twice. I mean, I loved it. I was hoping, dude, they were actually looking for a, like a boat unit at our at my final agency where I finished in New Jersey. They were like putting like four or six people on a boat. And I was like, they're like, yeah, they're going to go to Fletzy to the, to the Marine program. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'll do anything. Like, you don't get put me in the boat. I just want to go back. And dude, that one's uh, even better because that's at Fletzy Charleston. That's that's where they run that program. So you would have been at Charleston the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get I knew I was getting picked. I was one of those guys, too. That just They, they weren't sending me. Making me want to go back. <laughs> I, I honestly, you know, it's funny that people have asked me, like, would you ever go back? And like, would you ever be like chief police somewhere or something like that? And I'm like, I can't. I just, I just, it's, it's, it would be a disservice to everybody else. I, my, my job is, no, just the truth. Like, dude, I'm in the private sector. I'm designing training programs. Yeah. We're trying to fix the whole fucking thing. Um, it would just, I, you know, I, I, I know I would do the, I do the right thing as a chief or a director or something like that. But, you know, uh, it's not about me anymore. It's about what I can contribute to the world and what I can do. And, you know, frankly, they also couldn't pay me enough. Being very clear. Like <laughs> you, you could name your highest salary. It wouldn't be enough for me. And I'm not no. trying to sound fancy. Just like for the potential of what this uh, beyond even street cop training can be and will be. Uh, it's just, you couldn't, I mean, it's huge. You know, just, I'm, I'm playing a different game now. Yeah. And that's a tough, that, I mean, I'm not the half the entrepreneur that my wife is or that or that you are, but like the, mm -mm. you know, let me, let me back it up a little bit. I maybe have the DNA consistency, but the time on the field, I am not exactly known as a wartime general yet. <laughs> I'm probably more of a like a rookie special forces guy. So let's just be very clear on that. When you Fair say, I, I think that I have the DNA of an entrepreneur and I'm obsessed with making things, making things better, continuing to fix problems. But dude, I hang out with guys. I'm in a mastermind group. Those yeah. dudes are like, you know, when I go outside for lunch and I'm in my like rental Dodge fucking pickup truck and I'm parked next to 16 Lamborghinis. Mm -hmm. I don't own a Lamborghini, just so we're clear, Chris. <laughs> I've done some mass. That was the first thing I did when I left, when I left uh, the government was join a mastermind group because I knew I was like, Man, you spent 15 years being, you know, the the round peg in the round hole, you know, that you do things in a certain way, right? And and you get very accustomed to doing things and operating within that very unique structure that is, you know, the oligarchy of government. And then you get out, you know, where you gotta, you know, you gotta hunt for what you're what you're gonna eat, and it's a whole different animal. So I jumped right to a mastermind, and same thing. I mean, like I felt immediately into just imposter syndrome like crazy well um, well you get a big big slice of humble pie my friend you think you're you hot do. shit go hang out with guys who make it 10 million a month yeah but they like, go hang out. I, was, I was hanging out with do you know manny koshman is no i don't think so manny koshman is a real estate mogul and essentially if you're friends with me on my personal instagram which people are welcome to fucking follow me i just got to vet that you're not a complete asshole psychopath um but like i'm in manny's garage taking pictures, sending my kids of his one of one Bugatti worth like nine and a half million dollars. Right. Right. So if you think you're, you're hot shit, cause you spent money on a fucking nicer pickup truck, like yeah. Manny's garage probably has a cons, uh, an overall value in just his one garage, about 60 to 70 million in cars, just his car collection. So the point of it is, you know, nobody 
is as good as they think they are. Even those guys don't think they're as good as they think they are. And we're all learning from each other nonstop. And for me, the mastermind thing has been, for what I pay and what I get, it's immeasurable. It's immeasurable. I am. I feel like I'm robbing them. And I know the guys who run the thing make a fucking good, uh, a good chunk of change on the whole thing. I get that. I don't give a fuck. It's not about what they make. It's about what I get as far as value. Surround right. yourself with people who are going to make you better, right? I mean, you know, surround yourself with people who are doing what you want to do. And how about surround yourself with people when you have five questions and you're stuck in your business, you can just fire out five questions and are like, boom. Yeah, dude, here's what you do. And I'm like, I'm calling my staff. I'm like, yo, I fucking figured it out. Like, Joe told me what the fuck to do. Like, go do this right now. <laughs> yeah, masterminds. You learn all sorts of things. Uh, but dude, like you're also learning uh, amazing stuff that these guys know, and they're just and so for the for like the rest of the law enforcement world, it's a big win for us because guys, when they help me progress, like my one friend dude. Joe's like talking about like designing like multiple training studios for us with AI. It's a real conversation that's happening right now. Like we might experiment with that if I can start pumping some money that into that. And he's like, bro, we can get this rolling. I have. A, he's like, it's funny you brought this up. I was thinking about you. I think it's a perfect application for what you guys do. You know, he's like, and, and like, dude, these are my friends. He's like, bro, let me know. Like, give me a fucking shout. I love it. So, Chris, I, I think that there is so much more to talk about. <laughs> Can we do this again? Is that cool? That'd be fine with me, man. I know I've got a, uh, I've got kid pickup coming up here. Not too, not too long down the road. So you yeah. and me both. I got to yeah. piss. Yeah. And we didn't talk about departing law enforcement. Yeah. We didn't talk about your family life. And just to preface people, Chris has adopted two special needs kids. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. My two so I'm girls. a guardian of a brother. I grew up with that, uh, who is special needs as well. All right. Um, so we'll, we'll get in some cool shit there. So I know yeah. exactly what you're going through, dude. I know that life. I lived it. I got still live it. Autis autism and cerebral palsy. We got, we got, uh, we got one, one, one on this side, one on that side and keep our hands, keep our hands full all the time. I fucking bet, dude. Yeah. That's like, a blessing. I got to tell you. I love it. I agree. Um, I, uh, we have my friend Lauren Tickner. She's a pretty big player in the game too. She was on here and uh, we actually found out. I met her through my mastermind group as well. She actually does, she did at some point, she designed Grant Cardone's LinkedIn page. She's got the connection. She's friends with right. Rosie. She's, yeah. Lauren, Lauren's hooked up. Uh, but we actually came together on here finding out that her brother and my brother both had the same diagnosis. All right. And so, um, dude, we're very connected now because people don't know what it's like to, grow up like that or or raise a child like that it's a whole different fucking ball game just you yeah. don't understand we talk about that all the time my wife and i about how you know you just like you can deal with with parents who have kids who are neurotypical or whatever else but then they just it's just it's a completely different ball game i mean i you had i think you had um you had jerry turning on your show before jerry's awesome jerry lives like 30 minutes from here jerry's great right his blue bridge training is incredible my my little my little one with with autism like when i've talked to jerry like he's he's describing my life you know and there's just something about that having that that connection with somebody else who gets it and understands it so that's that's awesome that you've you've found that with someone as well it's great i think our job on this podcast is to just find these people who are very unique in the world i think that's just part of the, what we're trying to do as an organization so I want to talk about that stuff, dude. But yeah. I didn't want to. I'm all about it. We'll come back. We'll do it again whenever it's convenient. Dude, you got to promise me you're still going to fucking film from your closet too. Oh, absolutely. It's the quietest place in my house. If you if you knew the chaos when the kids are home, like you would film, you know, you're in the closet as well. It was a real pleasure, and thank you for absolutely. coming on here. We're gonna do this again for sure. So everybody, pay attention to the next time Chris Healy's on. More shit to come. The fucking training, the entrepreneurship. 
the being a father of, uh, you know, special needs children, cool shit. And yeah. hopefully we just continue rolling with this stuff, man. And, and I want to be able to help you in some of the things that you're trying to do as well. Cool stuff to talk about and to come. So appreciate, appreciate you it. here today, man. It was a lot, a lot of fun. Outstanding. Hey guys, check out our upcoming training at streetcop.com. Don't forget, we have 50 instructors nationally teaching a variety of topics. These are the best classes you're going to experience in your career. We make sure of it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you, you're going to be thankful that you went. Check us out at streetcop.com for all upcoming classes in your area.